we're in a series uh, called uh, The Questions Jesus Asked, and we get to one of the most poignant, important questions Jesus could have ever asked his original disciples and us. It's the question, who do people say that I am? But then in usual Jesus style, he then says, and by the way, who do you say that I am? So he's interested in both what's culture saying about me and what are you saying about me? And to kind of get us thinking about what our culture is saying about Jesus today, I want you to look up here on the screen. We, we kind of ask some modern day people what they think. And then uh, I'm going to pray and we're going to dive right in. So look up here on the screen to get you thinking. Who do you say Jesus was? I have no idea. Who was Jesus? Gosh, I have to start with I'm not sure. Who was Jesus to you? Some guy. Actually, I don't believe in Jesus. Not really sure exactly who Jesus was. I think Jesus was uh, was a was kind of a cool guy back in his day. Who was Jesus to you? <laughs> I think I'm done. I don't like to talk about it. I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not religious. Who do you think Jesus was or is? Uh, Jesus was a historical figure. I believe that Jesus Christ was a man who had an extraordinary ability to link in with the creator. I think he was uh, definitely someone that people, you know, a good role model. I, I do think he had a lot of great ideas. More or less, he was just a prophet, which is just a messenger of God. Sort of a revolutionary in his day. Jesus was an amazing man. I don't believe he's God's son. I just believe he's a person. As to his, like, God-like quality, I'm not totally sold on that. You think he was a prophet? And I would, see, I'd have to be Christian to really believe that. Jesus was the Messiah for some people, and for some people he wasn't. I'm not necessarily sure if Jesus was the Messiah or a prophet, but in either case, he was somebody that spoke the word of God. He was equal portions of of human and, uh, and that energy that is God. People said he was sent by God. Well, no one, God doesn't send him down. You don't go on up. <laughs> I mean, you... He linked in. I mean, I do believe in Jesus in the sense of like, yeah, I believe in Jesus that I'm, I'm not saying that he, he didn't exist or anything of the sort, but the fact that, um, I mean, I necessarily don't go and uh, pray to Jesus. Who was Jesus? Uh, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus was the son of God. I believe Jesus is the son of God who came to save us all from our sins. Jesus was a savior. Who died for our sins and cleaned us, made us pure enough to enter God's glory. The, um, only way you can get to heaven. Who do you think Jesus is? Um, who do I think he is? I, I don't think it's who he was. I think he still is Jesus, so he's not gone or anything, you know. I guess embodied technically he is, but he's still here. The Jesus story sort of borders on history and myth for me, um, but I don't believe that it could have permeated our culture so fully and for so long if there was nothing to that. Let's pray. Father, we uh, want to answer the question today that Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And then also the twin to that, who do you say that I am? And I pray, God, that as we wrestle with that this morning in our own minds and our hearts with what culture is saying today and then as we look at your word, what the Bible says about who Jesus is, that God, more than anything, that you'd give us clarity we live in a very confused time, Father, when it comes to the nature of Jesus and who He is. Lots of differing opinions, as we're going to see out there today. 
And Father, I pray that as we narrow that down, as we whittle away at what everybody's saying and then what the Word of God says, that God, you would help us to understand with crystal clarity who Jesus was, who he is, and most importantly, the call he has on our lives. So that's my humble prayer. I pray, Lord, you might do that in our hearts and minds now, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I uh, want you to picture this. You. It's 2,000 years ago. You've been following Jesus around Palestine for some two and a half years. You're trying to figure out who he is and what he is about. You're really drawn to him. I mean, you're enamored with his teaching. You're into his miracles. You love his absolute love and like for other people. You like how he relates to God the Father. I mean, there's lots of things that draw you to Jesus, but you don't really get what he's about yet. And at one point, when you're far away from home on mission trip, Jesus turns to you and he asks you a very pointed question. Here's the question. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Look up here on the screen. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Very interesting question. Up to this point, Jesus has asked you about 40 or 50 different questions. We've looked at a few of them in this series. And now he asks you, who do people say that the Son of Man who I am? And being someone who has his ear to the ground of your family and your friends, your co-workers, your business associates, your school acquaintances, you even watch CNN and MSNBC and PBS specials, you know what they're all saying about Jesus. You attempt to answer his question. And so you say this, look at verse 14. You say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, you have heard people talk about Jesus. You've heard what the religious, what the academic, what the societal leaders are saying about him, their opinions. And so you list off this litany to Jesus. You say, well, King Herod, who had John the Baptist beheaded, believes that you're John the Baptist come back to life. I mean, you seem to have the same focus that John the Baptist had. You have some of the powers that he had. And so some think that you're John the Baptist, Jesus. On the other hand, you say, the religious establishment long ago believed that the Old Testament prophet Elijah, who never died but was taken back up into heaven, was someday going to come back. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 seems to insinuate this. So some say that you're the prophet Elijah, come back to life. But then as you think about it some more, you say, but gosh, Jesus, it's really confusing because I've heard other experts who believe that there's simply going to be an end-time prophet who comes kind of in the spirit of Jeremiah ramming us or or, or hammering home to us about our sin and, and, and ramming the truth down our throats. And so maybe you're just him. Some say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And yet as you ponder even further, you find yourself saying, but the crowds have all kinds of opinions about you. And they're listing all kinds of prophets and holy men that you might be. Prophets of social change, moral change, religious change. Some say that you're one of them. Folks, don't miss this. This is how Jesus' original disciples, his first century followers, responded to the question, who do people say that I am? They listed all the differing opinions of what people were saying about Jesus, just like in our video that we just saw, and yet none of them were really hitting the mark. I mean, it was one of those multiple-choice questions in which they were getting every one of them wrong in a very real sense. And yet Jesus was nonetheless interested in what culture was saying about him so that they could wade through and evaluate each one of them as wrong, 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 wrong until they got to the right. 
You know, you and I live in a very unique time today in our understanding of Jesus. In fact, most scholars would admit that we live in one of the most unique, skeptical, and even outrageous times of history, or times in history, more than any other. For about the first 300 years of the time after Jesus ascended into heaven, they they bickered back and forth and argued and tried to understand who he really was. And finally, in what was known as the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, they came to some very clear conclusions as to who Jesus was and is. And for the next 1,500 years, by and large, through the Middle Ages, the Enlightenment, the Reformation, by and large, culture in the West had general agreement on who Jesus was and is. I mean, even through the famous Reformation where there was lots of disagreements about things like salvation and the nature of faith and things like that, by and large, people agreed that Jesus wasn't as the Son of God, rose from the dead, came to deliver us from our sins. I mean, general agreement on who Jesus is. But in the last 100 years, in the western part of the world, meaning Western Europe and the states here, there has been massive confusion on who Jesus is. I mean, you and I live in a time unlike any other in its quest for Jesus. And we're living in it right now. We're going through it. And so I want to share with you what the four top views are out today when you listen to academicians, the media, and societal leaders about who Jesus are. That if Jesus was asked the same question, who do people say that I am, here is what the leading scholars and journalists are saying about Jesus today. Number one, some say that he's a myth. Some say that he's a myth. It actually seems kind of ironic. Nobody would have dared answer it this way in Jesus' day because if they had responded to him directly by saying, you're a myth, he'd say, look at me. I'm right here. I can't be a myth. I'm not a figment of your imagination, but I really exist. And yet 2,000 years later, with all that has happened with the discovery of the rest of the known world, with lots of wars that have come and gone, and with records of history getting scarcer and more opaque as time goes by and that will just be expected, there are some who now truly believe that there never was a man named Jesus and that he's simply as mythical as the other Greek gods that existed around Jesus' time like Zeus or Hermes. A few years ago, CNN.com did a book review on a new but controversial book called The Jesus Mysteries. Was the original Jesus a pagan god? And the primary thesis of this book, written by two British scholars, is that when you read the Gospels, they argue it reads more like the mythical legends around the time of Jesus than they do history. And specifically, they tied the Gospels, uh, accounts of Jesus, to the Greek Osiris Dionysius myth, in which it tells the story of a God-man who came to earth and died for others. And so listen to how the authors of this book put it. Look up here on the screen. They say the key thing really is understanding that the Jesus story as we have it is a myth. We can argue in the dark about whether it was based on a living man, but the fact is that if all that remains are mythic archetypes that, are pre, or that predated the Jesus story and have been laid onto somebody, then still what we have is a myth. Jesus is a myth. And folks, before you dismiss this idea as nonsense and hence irrelevant, please know that this book made the national bestseller list in England, garnered at least one Book of the Year award, and was even praised highly by an Episcopal bishop here in the States. In other words, this idea that Jesus is a myth is being listened to by some parts of our culture at large. 
My guess is, if you've rubbed shoulders with people out there that have thoughts about Jesus but don't really know Him yet, you've heard this answer. I have. I've heard people say to me, come on, Jamie. I mean, He didn't really exist. He's just a myth. I've heard this response given. And yet the response that you and I need to give back to this, to people who claimed that he was a myth, is simply to point out, and this is actually a pretty easy one, that the vast majority of scholars, and I mean liberal and conservative, skeptical and believing, outright dismiss this notion of Jesus being a myth simply because the overwhelming evidence of how we grade and rate historical documents from antiquity reveal that the New Testament documents are extremely and convincingly reliable. It's true. In other words, when you put the New Testament documents, and specifically the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in light right next to all the other ancient documents of that day, that tell us about Aristotle or Julius Caesar or Nero or any other popular figure back then, the New Testament documents actually prove more reliable than just about anything that we have from that era. It's true. I mean, check this out. We have over 500 Greek copies alone of the Gospels dating within a few hundred years of Christ. And some of them dating as early as 125 A.D. within almost a generation of Jesus' death. And of these 5,000 Greek copies, they all agree on about 99.9% of the details. When you compare this to Aristotle's works, the earliest copies of which we have date more than 1,000 years after he lived. And of these, we have only a handful. And yet nobody doubts that Aristotle existed. Nobody doubt that he wrote what he did. And so the point is, is that if you argue Jesus is a myth, you have to argue that Julius Caesar, Aristotle, and Nero also didn't exist. In fact, any ancient figure, because we have more evidence that the New Testament is historically reliable than any of those writings. Some say he was a myth, but it's not really true, at least by the accepted historical standards we have today. And most people see this. Now, It would be easy if all current culture said about Jesus was that he was a myth. But it doesn't stop there. Not at all. The second thing that many scholars and even some religious authorities are saying today, something that the media has also picked up on, is that Jesus was a wisdom sage. He was a wisdom sage, simply a dispenser and giver of divine and wonderful wisdom. Kind of like a wise grandfather figure with a soft voice and a gentle presence. Jesus, they say, was simply a very wise man who had some very awesome and powerful things to say about the spiritual realm. And so he went around Palestine dispensing this wisdom to all who would listen and model their lives after him. Kind of like a Gandhi or Dalai Lama, but for Christians. Uh, Two of the most respected and popular proponents of this view are scholars who live here in the United States by the name of Robert Funk and John Dominic Crossan. They're founders of what is known as the popular Jesus Seminar. And what these people have basically done, and their fellow academicians, check this out, is that they've taken the gospel stories and they've said, well, you know, all the supernatural things that happened in the gospels couldn't have really happened. Those things must have been made up. But Jesus was a real person. He wasn't really a myth. And his sayings are really kind of cool. So let's get rid of all the supernatural stuff. Let's grab onto the sayings of Jesus, add all those things up, pick the ones that seem the most historically reliable, and call that the wisdom of Jesus. 
But we'll get to in a minute what we do with people who do things like that. We don't lynch them or anything like that. I mean, what we do with their worldview. But, but the idea that is is that they parcel out certain aspects of the historical documents, taken these aspects of it, and then said Jesus is basically a dispenser of divine wisdom. And so he's not the powerful Son of God come to die for the sins of humankind, but simply a man of great insight, stripped of all his miraculous power and divine nature, but one who nonetheless said some great things about the kingdom of God. It's Jesus the wisdom sage. That's who some say he is. Now hang on to this. We're going to evaluate this in just a minute. But first, notice me a third view that's subtly different than this one that sees Jesus as a spirit person. A spirit person. Simply put, Jesus knew God better than most any figure in history. He lived and walked in such a way as to truly get in touch with the Spirit of God and hence live in and by the Spirit. Now now this one's really tricky, folks. I hope you're with me on this because this is subtle and tricky. And the reason it's tricky is that most Christians would agree, obviously, that Jesus was filled with and lived by the Holy Spirit. I mean, he talked about the Spirit of Lot a lot. But this view that he was a spirit person takes this idea that Jesus lived by the Spirit and stops there, adding no more. In other words, they have a partial understanding of what Jesus was like, but it goes no further than this and just stops there. Uh, Marcus Borg is a professor of religion at Oregon State University and author of the best-selling book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. You're not going to find it in our bookstore, but you will find it at Barnes & Noble's and most secular university bookstores. And though Borg is a member of the Jesus Seminar that I mentioned earlier that Crossan and Funk belong to, he takes a different, even more simple approach than they do when it comes to reading the Gospels. Again, Borg argues that Jesus is a spirit person. Listen to what he says. Look up here on the screen. He says, He, Jesus, was a spirit person, a mediator of the sacred. Jesus was radically centered in the Spirit of God, and his relation to the Spirit was a source of everything that he was. Man, if you didn't know any better, if you were just one of those guys on the street like we saw in our video earlier, wouldn't this sound so cool? I mean, it would to me. I mean, if I was seeking spiritual things and I was into Jesus because Jesus is cool and I read a statement like that, I'd say, wow, that sounds awesome. Jesus was a spirit person. He knew God better than anybody. Maybe I can know God like he does. It's a spirit person. Somebody's filled with the Holy Spirit. No more, no less. That's what they say Jesus was. And then before we make sense of all this, lastly, some still today relegate Jesus to a prophet. They relegate him to a prophet. You know, some things never change. Just like in the first century, when Jesus originally asked this question, as many in that culture said, well, I think you're this kind of prophet or that kind of prophet. Today, we have many, many, many writers who see Jesus as a prophet of social reform or religious reform or even end times calamity. You know, the topic before us today is really my my wheelhouse. I mean, there's very few things I'm good at. I don't play basketball very well, not a good baseball player. Duff can attest I'm terrible at golf, even though I enjoy the game. Uh, If you asked me to run your business, I'd run it into the ground. There's lots of things that I don't do well, but when it comes to faith and spiritual things, you would hope that that would be my wheelhouse. And my kids call me a dork precisely because I love to read contemporary theology and what everybody's saying about Jesus. 
And I've got to tell you, I've read at least a dozen books in the last 10 years by liberal scholars who all have this different view of Jesus, and almost every one of them come down to some sort of prophet or not. I've read books that Jesus is a prophet of social change, that he's an apocalyptic prophet, that he's a revolutionary prophet, that he's a Hellenistic or Greek hero. I mean, there's at least a dozen major views out there today with hundreds of scholars spending all their waking moments arguing for one view or another, all with a similar strain, he's a prophet. And again, folks, before we scoff and dismiss this, the views of Borg and Funk and Crossan, I want you to remember this, that these are mainline university and college academicians writing these books. They're receiving the attention of Oprah and PBS specials and New York Times book reviews. And then it's being digested and read by many in our culture today. And so when we ask the question that Jesus asked, who do people say that he is? These are the four main answers that we tend to get. That he was a myth. That that he was a wisdom sage. That he was a spiritual person. That that he was a prophet. I, I mean, to show you how real this is, in the hometown that I come from, a little town outside Cleveland called Chagrin Falls, Ohio, The Happening Church in Town, which is a big liberal Protestant church, right before I left town, they were studying one of Marcus Borg's books in their enrichment classes, in their Sunday school classes, and they weren't studying it to evaluate it like you and I were. They were buying into it lock, stock, and barrel. And so imagine somebody going to church and walking out that day saying, I don't think there was a literal resurrection. I don't think he really died on a cross for our sins. I don't really think that he had a divine nature as the Son of God. No, I think he was a good spirit person. I think he was a good wisdom sage. I think he might have been a myth. I think that he was a prophet. I mean, this is what's happening in our culture at large. And folks, I don't think God's laughing at this. I don't think he's scoffing it. And I don't think, like many Christians today, he's taking it lightly or dismissing it with a wave of his hand or shutting down his mind. No, I think he bleeds and aches for all of his confusion. And I think he calls the church, you and I, to engage others, their minds and hearts, in a loving and patient fashion as we help them wade through the options of Jesus and help them understand who he really is. Real quickly, before we move on, I want to make two key observations that might, you, might help you help others make sense of all these confusing and even competing views of Jesus. That before you even go on to say, well, I think he's the son of God and that's it, don't do that initially. No, there's a couple things you can do to enter into their worldview that will help you help them. Here's the first thing you can do, and that is to help them see that most of these views are built upon presuppositions that unbendingly assume that supernatural events don't happen in a natural world. I know that's a mouthful. But, but this is really what's happening in the majority of these views, and that is that before they even make a conclusion about Jesus, before they even start looking at the data, the vast majority of these scholars and book writers go into the process, and I get this, presupposing that supernatural things don't happen in a natural world. In other words, they bought lock, stock, and barrel into science or evolution or the scientific method, which is fine in many ways. Science teaches some good things, But then they assume that because science has informed their worldview that supernatural things don't happen in a natural world. And so they read the Gospels with these kind of glasses in such a way that they've ruled out the supernatural way before you've looked at all the data. 
And obviously, their view is then going to be tainted. Their conclusion is set at the beginning. It's kind of like if you go in to argue with your spouse and you have some certain things in your mind that you've concluded that he or she has said and done, even though he or she didn't really say that, the argument's going to be tough, isn't it? And we all have had that experience. Same thing when you look at Jesus. If you don't go in with an open mind, then your conclusion's already set. I like how Robert Stein, a senior professor of New Testament at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky, says it in his book, Jesus the Messiah. Look up here on the screen. This is great. He says, without an openness to the supernatural, the result of any investigation of the life of Christ has predetermined that the resulting Jesus will be radically different from the Jesus who was born of a virgin, anointed by the Spirit, healed the sick, raised the dead, died for the sins of the world, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. He says, yet it is a supernatural Jesus that humanity desperately needs. For only this supernatural Jesus can bridge the gap between human sin and God's holiness. He says what the world so critically needs is a Savior, but only a supernatural Jesus can be a Savior. Amen? I mean, that's what we rally around here every week when we meet. And he's basically saying, help people see that these folks who have this seemingly open mind and blank slate to who Jesus is really don't have an open mind and blank slate. They've determined the end before they've even started because they've ruled out the supernatural. And that's the theme that you see through most of these. Help people see that. But then don't stop there. Help them see a second fly in the ointment of these popular but historically rare views of Jesus. Help them see that most of these views have also reconstructed history. In other words, you picked up on this earlier. They pick and choose what they want to believe from the gospel accounts, and they refuse to accept them as a whole as they were written. This is actually a really scary part of what they do. It's what the Jesus Seminar does. It says, because again, they don't believe in supernatural stuff, anything supernatural that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote, we're just going to chalk up to hyperbole. We're just going to chalk up to the fact that they didn't know what they were talking about or they were exaggerating things or whatever. But then all the sayings of Jesus, and not even all the sayings, they got them color-coded to the ones that they like and that they don't like. All the sayings of Jesus, we're going to pick these and pick those and incorporate them in our understanding of Jesus as we want to. It's simply a postmodern reconstruction revisionist view of history. It's what postmodernism does. It says that I have my truth, you're of your truth, and really what matters is my truth. And so when I read history, I'm going to read it only in the view of my truth, and I'm only going to pick the things that fit my truth. And folks, we didn't do that for the first 1900 years. That's why our view of Jesus is so tainted. I mean, that's scary when we view the Gospels like that. I mean, the way the Gospel accounts were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they wrote about Jesus, now get this, was that you would either accept or reject who He claimed to be in all of its completeness or fullness, not pick and choose what you want to believe and take that home in your own mind. It's not the way they were written. It's never the way Jesus intended us to approach Him. I like the way the famous C.S. Lewis, writing some 60 years ago, because this has been around for about 100 years now, says it to his culture. And talking to them about the fact that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, God come in the flesh. We'll get to that in just a minute here. And yet some in his day were trying to say, well, you know, he was basically a great moral teacher. Uh, Listen to what Lewis says. This is great. 
He says, I'm trying to prevent here, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, namely, that I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, he says, we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Lewis says you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. (laughs) I like that. I think he's right. I think he's dead on in the way that he's presenting the Gospels to us. In other words, accept them or reject them. Don't rewrite them. They were never intended for that purpose. We don't do that with the historical records of Abraham Lincoln. So why do we do it with Jesus Christ? No, he wants something more from us than that. These two things are going to help you help others in wading through what our culture says about Jesus. Deal with the issues of presuppositions. They've written the end right at the beginning. And then deal with the, end, or deal with the issue of reconstructing uh, history. Why would we do that? Why can't we just accept them with an open mind and accept or reject? Now, we have just a few minutes left. And yet we can't end this morning without answering the second part of this twin question, really the most important part, who do you say that I am? I I love it. Jesus never lets us get away with answering one of his questions in some sort of esoteric up here kind of fashion. He always brings it down, doesn't he, to where you and I live and says, what about you? So look at verses 15 to 16 of Matthew 16. It says, he, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, folks, listen very close. When you understand the historical and cultural aspects of these two phrases, the Christ and the Son of the living God, what you realize is that what Peter is saying very poignantly and powerfully is this. Look up here on the screen. He's saying, you are the Messiah. God, come to me. You're the Messiah, God come to me. In other words, you're the one that the Old Testament for thousands of years now has written about. The one that Israel and all the world has been waiting for. You're the one who's going to give us freedom from our sin, forgiveness and redemption. You're the one who's going to bring God to us and us to God. All that's contained in the Old Testament. And Peter, being a good Jew, understood that. And he said, you're the Messiah God, come to me. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's what the angel would say to Joseph in the dream. Remember that? Predicting Jesus' birth and life when he referred to Jesus as Emmanuel out of Isaiah, which means God with us. John, who was one of Peter's best friends, would write a gospel. And he would say it like this. He was more poetic. He'd say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word, finish it with me, was God. In other words, they're all latching on to the same thing. You and I are getting like a front row view of history here as we put ourselves in Peter's place when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And the light is going on in their heads 
And they say, well, you're not Jeremiah, you're not Elijah, you're not one of the prophets, and you're not John the Baptist. You're not a myth, you're not a wisdom sage, you're not a spirit person, and you're not a prophet, though you are a prophet, but much more. No, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, God, come to me. I mean, think about that, folks. God come to earth for you, to bring you to himself to bridge the gap that your sin created between you and himself. That's the claim that Jesus makes about himself. That's the confession that Peter is giving here in answer to the question, who do you say that I am? Peter believed and trusted personally who Jesus really was, namely God in the flesh, come to bring humanity, and specifically here Peter, back to himself. And so John, again, would say it this way when it comes to who Jesus is and what our response must be. Look up here on the screen. As he wrestled with it and came to his conclusion, he would say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Fascinating phrase, the Word became flesh. So this this God who existed eternally before even the world began, this Word became flesh, has now dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Pause there. People ask me all the time, how can he be God and also be God's son? Anybody know the answer to that? Well, it's called the Trinity. The Bible affirms three things. It affirms God the Father is God. It affirms God the Son, Jesus, is God. And it affirms that the Holy Spirit, you find this in the epistles, are also God. And yet the Old Testament, if you've read the Bible, says there's only one God. So how can that be? First three centuries, that's what they wrestled with. They finally came up with a statement called the Trinity. That you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all God, all 100% God. It's not like one-third, one-third, one-third. No, all 100% God, but all existing as one. But different manifestations of God. Wow. And so Jesus truly could be the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, while also being fully God. That's what John is saying here. But then look at what he says our response to this should be. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, but to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And now we're getting somewhere. He's saying that Jesus is the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, and he calls each and every one of us to become a follower of him with belief and trust and faith as our tools entrusting him each day. And make no mistake, this is exactly what Peter latched on to in this moment. God come in the form of man. God come to bring us to himself. And belief and trust became Peter's pathways to become the man of God that he became. And yet here's the dilemma with our Western view of Jesus in the Bible today. And that is that you and I use these words belief, faith, and trust all the time. Give me a head nod that you guys understand. We use these words all the time, right? Like, you ask somebody today, you know, do you believe in Jesus? And what's the answer? Well, yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus. Like, you know, everybody believes in Jesus, right? And so it's almost deceptive if you say to somebody, do you believe in Jesus? Because everybody seems to believe. No, we need to ask ourselves two questions. What? One, who is the Jesus you're believing in? We've answered that today. Son of God, second person of the Trinity, come to bring you to God through the forgiveness of your sins. But then secondly, you also have to ask yourself, Um, What do you mean by believe, and how much strength do you put behind that word, right? 
In other words, do you believe it like you believe that it might rain this afternoon? Or do you believe it like you believe something so strongly that it burns within you each moment of each day? And because I believe it's so easy to lose perspective on what it means to believe in Jesus, isn't it interesting that just a few sentences later, after Peter's confession, Jesus, in response, says these words to his disciples. Look up on the screen. Look at verses 24 through 26. This is revealing. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, here it is, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life is going to lose it. Whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake will find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Don't miss the irony that Jesus attaches here to what it means to believe. He says, lose your life in me, abandon yourself to me, and you will find it. But try to find your life in the world and all the lures that it gives you, and you're going to lose it. So could it be that this idea of belief and trust though it begins as an intellectual thing and becomes a heart thing, eventually becomes a willful thing and turns into following him as well, and that it's all part of the process. I don't know about you, but that's been a lot of my journey. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, as many of you know, and uh, so by the time I was 17, I was pretty uh, mired in what high school students do to have fun, and I was having a lot of fun, but something in me wasn't right. I felt a real emptiness, a void, that I wanted to fill. And so I sought out a guy who I knew was spiritually right on. He was a Youth for Christ staff worker in my little town there. And I spent about three months with him. And during that time, he explained to me what I've explained to you today about who Jesus really is. And on March 11th, 1981, he asked me if I was ready to truly believe and trust in Christ as my Savior and as my Lord, as the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. And I said, yep, I am. And so on March 11th, 1981, I knelt and I prayed a prayer and I accepted Christ into my life and I count that as my spiritual birthday. But you know, I hadn't really counted the cost at that point as much on what it really meant to follow him and to trust him with everything. And so I actually humorously look back on that time in my life and I realized that I actually struggled more with sin after I became a Christian than before. In other words, before I became a Christian, the stakes weren't very high and it didn't matter. But once I accepted Christ, now I had the Holy Spirit in me and I felt guilty for what I did and I really started to battle the things that high school students battle. So for the next two years, I was what you might call a walking hypocrite. All my friends from high school would say, there's born again Jamie, wait till Friday night and then the story be written. And I was just the walking example of a hypocrite. And though I don't have time to tell you the whole story this morning, about a year and a half after that event of accepting Christ in my freshman year of college, I can remember the day. It was Thanksgiving Day, November 1983. I'd had enough. I mean, you can't live in sin as a Christian and not feel the weight and conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'd had enough. And for whatever reason on that night, I think it was a spirit thing, I said, enough is enough. And I stayed awake at my parents' home. I was visiting back from college at my kitchen table. I read half of Matthew and all of Philippians. I didn't understand much about the Bible, but I knew that God wanted all of me. And I prayed that night what I have labeled in hindsight a prayer of recommitment to him in which I laid it all down. And I knew I was going to still struggle in my life with things. I knew I wouldn't be perfect, but I also knew that he was going to have all of me. I knew that my heart, my mind, my soul would be his. To use Jesus' words, I was putting my hand at a plow and I wasn't looking back. I knew that my life was going to be his. 
No idea I'd be a pastor. No idea what the future held for me. I just knew that I was done playing games and that my life was his. Interesting journey. A year and a half before, coming to believe and trust in him for eternal life, then learning a year and a half later what it really means to follow. I wonder if there's not some decisions to be made similarly here this morning. I want us to wrap up our service by giving you a chance to respond in similar ways that I have in the past to an understanding of who Jesus really is. You see, there's some of you here this morning that are ready to make a decision like I did initially to realize and answer to the question, who do you say that I am, that he truly is the Son of God? He's the Messiah, God come for me. In other words, you're ready to believe today that he's more than a wisdom sage, more than a prophet, more than a holy man. You're ready to believe today for the first time that he's your redeemer, come from God as God for you. You're sick of your sin. You know you need forgiveness. You're ready to make the most important decision ever in your life, and that's to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm going to give you a chance to do that in just a minute here. There's some of you, however, that are ready to make the decision that I made a year and a half later, and that is to make Jesus the center of your life and to surrender your all. In other words, maybe like me, you're somebody who's accepted Christ into your life, but you know you're kind of a walking hypocrite. I called to Mayo about a week and a half ago in the middle of my study time. I got a call from my secretary and said, there's a man who's asking for you at Mayo and he wants only you or Daryl. Would you know Daryl's in San Diego or somewhere like that? And so uh, I was the one. And I got to Mayo and I said, what's up? And this man had been in a coma for about 10 days. He sits in the back every Sunday here for the last 10 years. He listened to Daryl for seven years, me for three and something happened in the midst of his coma that I'll let him maybe explain to you sometime, but something happened in which he realized he's been playing a lot of spiritual games. Probably technically saved, but came out of that coma saying, I want to commit my life fully and absolutely to Christ. And he asked me if I'd pray with him. It was a joyous moment. Sat there in Mayo, led him in a prayer of recommitment that I want to do with some of you in just a minute. But as I was driving home from Mayo, here's the thought that hit me. And I hope we can laugh at this, but I thought... Why does it take being in a coma for 10 days for some of us to wake up, right? I mean, I deal with people all day long, and it's like, you know, why does it take it to get that bad for some of us to get that right with God? And I think my friend would admit that. And so maybe for some of you today, you're ready to lay your life down before Him, to recommit your life to Him before it gets to coma time for you. Maybe you're ready to say, no, I realize who he is. Kind of like me back in November of 1983. I'm, I'm, I'm done playing games. I'm laying it down today. I want to give you a chance to do that. Now, here's the deal. I think there's something very powerful and courageous about coming down here to do a prayer and commitment like that. Some people call it an old-time altar call. I don't care what you call it. I just think there's something powerful about you having the freedom and the guts to stand up to come down here with your pastor, because I'm going to stay down here, to kneel if you want, stand if you want, but to make a decision to either trust Christ for the first time, because some of you are ready to do that, or to recommit your life to Him. And that's how we want to end our service here this morning. We did it in the first service, and it was a precious time. I want to give you a chance to come down here to be with me, your pastor, and as the song is being sung here, just lay yourself out before God, and then I'm going to lead you guys in a couple of prayers, a prayer again to receive Christ for the first time or to recommit your life. And the only thing I ask you is if you stand and you come forward here today, mean it. 
mean it. I've only done something like this three or four times in my entire life. I can count on one hand how many times in the last 30 years that I have done something as courageous as coming down because I don't see it as a flippant thing. This is between you and God, but I want to make sure that you're ready to lay your life down before Him or to receive Him for the first time. I think many of you are. Make sure. Put your hand to the plow. We're not looking back. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that time and time again the scriptures seemingly on every page call us to this repeated theme of belief and trust and faith and then they also help us understand what it means to follow you and to lay our lives down and though lord for some of us it happens all in a blink of a moment for others of us we tend to have some periods of time before and i pray god that if there's somebody here today who's ready to trust christ for the first time for salvation was ready to recommit their lives that they would have the courage the joy really to come down here and to recommit their lives so receive this time receive our song may you be blessed may you be pleased with what is about to take place in jesus holy and precious name amen jesus messiah standing to just look up to me as your pastor and your friend, I want to say a few words to you. And that's it, as I just said, I don't uh, take decisions like this lightly, kind of on one hand, how many times I've been where you are, but I will also tell you this, that they were extremely precious times, they were what 
one author calls defining moments for my life. I can remember each and every one of them. Times where I gave my life to Christ for the very first time for salvation or a recommitment time in which I drew a line in the sand and I dared Satan to cross it. I said, I'm God's. He's mine. And I'm not looking back. And so I want you to know I take this commitment very seriously for you as your pastor and as your friend, and I'm proud of you. And as a pastor of this church, I can't wait to see what God does in and through you, and selfishly speaking, to strengthen our church, because I think it's these kind of spiritual commitments that are the backbone, the strength of a church moving forward to be a prevailing church in the culture he's placed us in. So you know you have my prayers, and you have the prayers of all these people, your brothers and sisters in Christ with you from this point forward. Let's pray. Why don't we bow? God, there are some who have come down here right now and they have for years believed a few things about Jesus that might fall into the realm of wisdom sage or holy man or a myth or what have you and they no longer believe that. They realize that today you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah come for them. And that things like sin and forgiveness, trespasses and redemption are very real things and that you came to bring us to yourself. And so God, I pray that as they kneel her right now and receive you as Lord and as Savior, that you give them that initial burst of joy as they confess their sin and their need for you, that God, you would help them to realize right now in this moment that they are yours and you are theirs never to be taken away sealed up in heaven, a guaranteed inheritance, and give them that initial burst of joy and peace from the Spirit. Father, there's others down here right now who are clearly those who have accepted you in the past, but like prodigals, they have wandered, have gone off and lived in pig slop for a while, and though they thought it was neat at first, they realized that their lives need to be hidden in you. And so, God, on their knees, some with tears, some with very tender hearts before you, they recommit their lives to you. They ask for a fresh and filling of your spirit, a fresh and filling of your movement and activity in their lives. Some of them come with specific needs, others with just a general sense that their lives need to be more fully abandoned to you. Lord, whatever it is, receive them. Remind them that you receive them, that you never turn away a returning prodigal. And that you're a God of first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth chances. So Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace that receives us today. Lord, for the rest of us, we commit to praying, supporting, encouraging, enveloping our brothers and sisters in Christ here. We're all in this together. And we thank you for this thing called the church that allows us to rally together as the body of Christ, together serving and following and trusting you. Bless us, we pray. Receive these commitments, we pray. In the holy, precious name of Jesus, and the whole church says together, amen. amen. God bless you. For those of you who are down here, we have some counselor staff who would love to pray with you further, talk with you. Feel free to stay. For all of you, God bless you and have a